morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I'm feeling a little bit fancy today. You are. Is it because of our our special guest who has her hair fanned out on the pillow? Like, uh, she said Medusa, but I think it's more like a Victorian heroine who maybe just had the vapors. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we are very happy to have joining with us today Jennifer Senior, who is a staff writer at the Atlantic. You have obviously also read her in the New York Times. And if you are a student, have a good memory when she was uh, at New York Magazine. Jennifer, welcome to Smoke em If You Got Them. Um, thanks for having me. I love you guys, as you know. I would love you can too. I also, can I also point out <clears throat> that Jennifer is our first Pulitzer Prize winner on this show. Is that true? Yes. Is it? I didn't know. <laughs> we haven't had that many guests. But... I, well, yeah, except for that, you know what? You're going to discover a lot of people with Pulitzers. I'm not going to be. I might be the first, but I'm not going to be the last. I mean, they're weirdly and arbitrarily given, and you'll be like, you'll suddenly notice, like, you're like, oh, they have a Pulitzer. Oh, interesting. And then you'll be like, does that make mine less cool? Like, you know, <laughs> really, they've been giving them out for a long time. And they just give them to, give them to anybody. These no, days they don't we... give it, you know, but I mean, they give them to a lot of people. But, we We had, yeah. We had John Ronson on. I'm surprised he hasn't won a Pulitzer yet, but I guess that's, that's coming. So, can I ask you, what does a Pulitzer look like? Do you get? Oh a trade, my god! Like a it, certificate. It looks like a tiny little lethal weapon. It's a super pointy um, Washington Monument, but it's only like three inches tall. It's like it's like the world's least endowed man. You know, it's like three inches tall. It's very <laughs> tiny. Um, but it, it's super sharp and pointy and it's extremely unsatisfying to look at. Like it, it just, it's too, it's small. It's really small and it's made by Tiffany. So I guess they think it's, Ooh. yeah, Ooh. I guess that's what, so, so they, but if you're going to spring for it, you know, like it should be whatever. I mean, it's tucked away. Nobody can see it in my house. Yeah. It's, it's truly in a corner. It would be pretentious as fuck to have it sitting out somewhere. So it's, it's a, but I mean, it, it, it's an odd, it's a curious looking object is what I would say about it. And when they give I you think- a tiny, a tiny bit of money, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a whole, a whole lot. Like you get much more if you, you know, win a Guggenheim or get a, a fellowship somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I think they count on the prestige being the big deal. And mm-hmm. did, did you get the Pulitzer for um, what, what Bobby McElvain yes. left behind, oh, which I reread yes. the other day? Um, which is an incredible article that ran in 2022, right? In in Let me, 20, the Atlantic? No, it had to be in 2021 because it was a 20-year anniversary, right? Okay, okay. So, yeah, 2001 um, plus 20. Yeah. Um, and as per usual, we'll have all links to, to everything we're talking about in the show notes. Um, one of the reasons we asked Jennifer on, besides that we're huge fans and also Jennifer is a friend, and, and I didn't realize you also knew Sarah before. Well, and that was like, I mean... If I had one major career failure, I, I dragged poor Sarah into it because, like, um, <laughs> the, the Times podcast—I mean, the Times opinion section—they first offered me a job as a columnist, and I was like, "Oh, you do not understand that that would be a terrible idea. I would be a t- horrible columnist." And then James Bennett, who at the time was the editor before he got defenestrated, um, asked me if I wanted to. He said he found out that. I wanted to be a podcaster and sort of, you know, made it seem like I could be the Terry Gross of the op-ed section, but no one gave me any such latitude. They immediately made me work with people from the daily who of course didn't want any internal competition, 
I got one person part-time, Andy Mills. Um, we were not a good fit together and he, he was still working on the daily all the time. And I mean, when they finally got, and they wanted me to do something else, but they weren't clear on what it would be. And anyway, Sarah was part of this experiment where like, I should have just had a conversation with her and interviewed her like a chat show, but they had me going beat for beat in a chronological order through her book, which is fine if you're walking a reporter through their story and you can add all the B-roll with like Mitch McConnell, you know, presiding over the Senate or, you know, and all the kind of, it, there was no B-roll for Sarah. I mean, I should have just had a conversation with her about drinking and addiction and loneliness and, you know, all the things that, you know, her book so brilliantly kind of touched on. And um, it was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare and a truth. It's so yeah. funny that, that you remember that as a nightmare because I really enjoyed that conversation. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. You were actually a really wonderful conversationalist and I found it like really enjoyable. And, you know, then it didn't, nothing ever came of it, but it was just kind of like, well, that was really fun. I got to talk to Jennifer for like an hour and a half. It was fantastic. You're very sweet. I felt like I wasted your time and I felt like I... I never got a chance to actually ask you the big questions, though, you know, or they, maybe I was asking I was asking them, but somehow, I don't know. Anyway, it, it that was I can ba- I can barely see straight when I think about, you know, I mean, because eventually what they did was they bought Kara Swisher and all her producers and they bought Ezra Klein and all of his producers, right. you know, and they had proper chat shows. But, you know. If I was meant to be a Terry Gross figure, like that, that was not going to happen under there. And did you leave the watch. Times after that? It was no. Did you go to- because what happened was then I worked with like a really wonderful group of people to do kind of like a six-part series that never wound up running. I was very close to it being finished. Um, about when to quit, I was obsessed with like the idea. So I did six. I had they were almost all done and in the can, and then the pandemic started, and I was so anxious that I started writing columns about the pandemic and various, you know, just just about, you know, kind of the crisis of legitimacy in our government and about like doctors and about marriage during the pandemic. And David Leonhardt left the op-ed page to go do the um, newsletters. So Jim Dow, who also hadn't yet been defenestrated, said to me, why don't you just quietly take over his Monday column? And you can appear midweek virtually and um, which is like the arrangement that most columnists had. And, um, and you can do that instead. And so for a year I did that by the end, I was like, I don't like appearing every week. This is a joke. I'm a long form person. And they were like, great. Right. Yeah. 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 And then I went to the Atlantic. The idea of doing a column to me is so intimidating and it seems like you'd have to just like make up, you know, having opinions about things and, and, (laughs) No, like it would to me, if I were to do it, I would just be basically manufacturing outrage against different things in the news cycle. And your talents is so better served in long form. You're very sweet. That is actually how I felt. You know what I discovered about columnists? They're really interesting. And by the way, sorry, I'm underplaying. Sarah, your book was so good and you're being so generous. And that generosity was in your voice. Um, so like on the page and you're talking now, so thank you for saying that. Cause I feel like I was so ashamed. I don't think I ever called you to say 
I'm so sorry. This is never running. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, you did, you emailed me. Did I, did I email you? Okay, good. You emailed me, but it's also, you have to know this kind of thing happens all the time, right? Uh, like that people interview you and it just doesn't do any like yeah doesn't go anywhere yeah I mean I've had that happen but I mean I, I didn't want to be one of those people but anyway to your thank you to your point um so here's what I discovered about columnists most of them really do walk around with a firm point of view about the world they have a worldview and so they are able to very quickly graft it on to whatever happens in the news and it all just gets filtered through that and I don't, I sort of, um, I would say like both of you guys probably. Same, same I write, point. yeah, exactly. Same. You it, shape shift it, into your, you your exactly. You need to understand what's going on. I would be a terrible, I have a lot of friends who are opinion writers. I could never be an opinion writer. First of all, number one, who cares what I think? Number two, right. I, I would, I would not feel like I have to go. It's like, oh, well now I'm going to really tell you what this means. Like, why would, no, that's not. That's not how my brain works. I have no. been a columnist many times. I think actually I have a slightly different point of view about when you, when I was a baby writer, I had a, like, I had a nightlife column and I had a food column and these things were actually useful when you're yep. young, just trying to like work and hit deadlines and kind of do this thing. And, but then they Absolutely. also inevitably you get, at least I did, I got bored. Like I didn't want to do this anymore after a year and a half. I have a monthly and also, column. that's different because I mean, yes. when I was a book critic, it's I mean, is that a column? Yeah. I mean, no, you know, we're right, meeting right. deadlines and you have to have a right. certain kind of discipline, but the material is not like one that you have to have a, a take on necessarily. Right, right. You have to right. have a sensibility maybe for like the things you like and what you don't. But like all of the people who I worked with, like, seem to have, um, like, here's the difference the three of us probably all write in order to figure out what we want to say, whereas they know what they want to say going in. And that's so different. And also the three of us, I feel like we're mini ethnographers. We hang out with, you know, and sort of figure out what people around us are thinking. Um, and we want to blend exactly kind of melt in, like you said, Nancy. The other thing is, uh, and this is weird. They all wake up at like 4.45, all the columnists. They all wake mm. up at first thing in the morning. They read everything. They read everything. They read everything. They read everything. Whereas uh, I was like, well, who has the impulse to read everything? I don't care about like what every single columnist does. I mean, I'd rather read a novel, you know, I'm so not mm -hmm. that. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I mean, I'm in this thing for like curiosity and discovery. Exactly. Try to figure out what the world is like around me and answer questions about my own life. So yeah, the idea of, of telling people what I think every day is actually kind of like a, anxiety nightmare for or, me or not even what you think but like what they're supposed to think it's like what are no, you i wouldn't thinking? even dare like, I, I don't even i have people ask me like what do you write about like what do you do i was like i usually i when everybody's telling me a story is this certain way and it doesn't make sense to me that's the story i want to go find out because yes i'm looking at something that doesn't make any sense so i have to go and try to make it make sense and it's often not what the story has originally how it's been told previously so the uh, so um you know, Bob McElveen Sr., when his son died, you know, he became a conspiracy theorist, right? Mm -hmm. and so, and mm -hmm. right, makes no sense to me, right? So you become obsessed with that. And it's like, all you want to do is figure out what Bob McElveen Sr. sees when he does that. I'm not interested in like forming a judgment about mm -hmm. why somebody became a conspiracy theorist. Like that's to me the, le I mean, 
you want to know what all the weird multi-determined over-determined forces are that made that person embrace something so nutty but in this case so poignant right so it's like yeah and you know what it's it's so funny that was the only argument that i had with jeff goldberg before publication where he was like you have to condemn this point of view you have to say that it's dangerous and i was like you know we're gonna have to disagree and you're absolutely you are absolutely right. There were two things in that piece, and then I, maybe you can talk a little bit about the piece for the listeners. Uh, or not. I mean, but I was just uh, thinking well, about so what this you is said. The, like, yeah. um, the story is, is what Bobby McElveen left behind. It is a young man. Was he 27 when the towers came Almost. down? Not Almost. Not quite. Yep. He he died. Um, he didn't work in the building, and so but he was supposed to just be there. And then was he there? And then he, of course he didn't come home. And and how his family, his fiance, his parents, and other people in the family, how they sort of metabolized this and understood it over two decades. And you had a connection because he had been your brother's roommate in college, correct? Is that right? At Princeton, Is exactly that right? right. Yep. And exactly. um, and so you know, Jennifer walked into this story and spent a long time. And it also became, which I didn't realize yesterday because I bought one of your books called Grief yesterday. And then when I opened it, I was like, oh, this isn't that article. But, but that's great. I love that you can can repurpose this and get this to people, you know, in, in other forms in case they're not, you know, on the Atlantic. But there were two things in, I'm going to read from that article. At one point, um, a therapist told the family, um, imagine that you're all at the top of a mountain, but you all have broken bones, so you can't help each other. You each have to find your own way down. This is exactly right. You, you know, any listener to this, to this program will recall that um, the um, 2021 article in the New Yorker called The Case Against the Trauma Plot by Parole Segal. You, you pronounce your name Parl. Like, Parl. It rhymes with Carl. Okay, yeah, Carl, for a while, so I, yeah. I basically wanted to marry this article because yeah, it was, it was really so good. incredibly sensible in what trauma is and how we have to individually understand this as opposed to sort of being swathed in the current, you know, ideas about what trauma is and what we must feel. And that is just, it's just nonsensical because everybody is either going to feel something or they're not and get through it on their own. The other thing you wrote in that piece, which I find so incredibly helpful, hopeful, is we are always inventing and reinventing the dead. I think that's beautiful. I think that that keeps keeps death opening. It keeps life going to be able to do this. And we must do this. And everybody here, I'm absolutely sure, has lost a loved one. And we daily sometimes reconnect and have re-ideas and, and create even new things that we are are having with these people or how they've um, infected our lives. And I wanted to say, I mean, we're, we're going to be gushing all over you here. I'm sorry, Jennifer. But yeah, Jennifer, are you okay with compliments? Do you take compliments? <laughs> yeah, because, girl. I tend to de- no, I tend to deflect well, them. I mean, sorry. And, and the way that I do it is that I then ask questions of other people. Good. I That's go into fine. reporter mode. Yeah. That's, I, I, I do the same, but I, I want right. to say. It's so girly. I, if we were three men here, we'd all be like, why, thank you. I know. Right. Yes, please. One more, please. One another. Yeah, I have another, sir. Um, but, I already um, had those for breakfast. <laughs> I need some for lunch. I need um, some for my elevenses. Anyway, go on. To, to me, 
you write, and I wrote this to you in an email, you write about things that are so consequential. And now I am going to repeat a compliment I got because I want to boomerang it back to you. The really wonderful writer and friend of ours, Kat Rosenfeld, wrote something to me the other day. She said, um, you write so beautifully about the most painful things. And I'm going to give that back to you. That, um, that is for sure true. Because you do. you do. I think um, the three of us well, all do that though, right? We all, you know, and we've all gotten plaudits for actually taking the hardest stuff and somehow transmuting it into something that people can relate to. I feel like it's the only thing left to do. I'm I, old. You know, no, but like, so am I. We yeah. we all are. The thing is that it's like but, but sure, my not. mother once <laughs> once asked me years ago, she's like, Why do you keep writing about dead children? This was a while ago. And I was like, well, mom, I think enough people have written about Paris Hilton's panties. Like I, <laughs> this is, I, I, I have to, I want yeah. to. Um, yeah. So yes, you, you've been, you've really, really been, been doing this with Bobby McElvain. And then of course the story that ran last week in the Atlantic, which I really want to talk about. Yes. I want to talk about it too. Can I say something about Bobby McElvain before yeah. we leave and get on to this brilliant story that you did in the Atlantic recently. The one thing I want to say about Bobby McIlvain was that when it first came out, I, I have to confess, I saw this piece and, you know, I love you, but I was like, I can't read a 9-11 story. Right, of course. Like, I've read so many 9-11 stories. I, I don't want to do it again. And then you started winning all the damn awards. <laughs> you won the filter. And then you won the National Magazine Award. And I was like, all right, all right, all right. I give in. I give in, Jennifer Sr. I will read your damn story. What I didn't understand was that the very fact that it's been so long, that it's been 20 years, that you would have the weight of 20 years yeah. of living and grief inside this story. And one of the things that you do is that, honestly, that story felt like a little novel to me. You know, oh, yeah. like I, I, I was walking alongside these people for 20 years. Um, and I finished it and I was like, okay, how did she make that work? And I was like, structure. There was something about the unfolding of that story that was just brilliant. And I think it was about um, introducing the story with that, um, the journal that they were, that they were fighting over because from the beginning of the story, I was like, I got to find out what's in that journal. Right. Like I got to read through this. And then, you know, you kind of tricked me into, into needing, you know, to, to figure that out. And then through that process, I go on this, this long journey with these people. And it was just extraordinary. I was like weeping by the end, you know? So thank you for saying that. Let me just say two things. I've never heard anyone say that quite so eloquently, right? That it's, you have the space of 20 years of grief inside it. But you're now making me realize, of course, I knew them for those 20 years, right? So that had accumulated in me. So it was a lot easier to sort of uh, um, conjure. But the other thing, and also it meant that it was pent up for 20 years. So like a structure had been slowly unfolding in my head for 20 years. The other thing is, do you guys listen to Heavyweight ever? Oh, God, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It, it is brilliant. It is one of the, and it's, a, it's each one is like a little novel, right? Each story that, that Jonathan Goldstein tells is a tiny little novel. So I realized at some point, then you will appreciate this, Sarah, has, so, so that the, each story, 
okay, so we'll explain this to Nancy. He's like a, uh, he's in the closure business. He's like a time traveling shrink. What he basically does is like a group of, so like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not a group, like he'll find a woman who will say a group of kids dumped me when I was in eighth grade and I don't know why and I'm 47 years old and I want to know why I was dumped. And he'll go and he'll find all the women who dumped her. And the story that she's been telling herself, of course, does not in any way correspond with the actual story. It's brilliant. And what put him on the map was his second episode. He had this extremely under, like bright, underachieving, sad sackish friend who, when he was a struggling you know, artist in New York, lent his box set CD, Songs of the South, Alan Lomax, to this unknown struggling DJ, this guy named Moby, who like <laughs> used it and became way famous and never returned the box set and never so much as thanked him. And so this guy has been sitting around waiting for his box set and, an, and a thank you, like some gratitude, a particle of gratitude for like 30 years or whatever. And so he contrives this meeting with Moby to get Moby to say thank you and to give him back his CDs, right? So, and the guy gets 50%. He gets the thank you. Um, so uh, I thought this is a, an episode of Heavyweight. Oh, like I, wow. I, 20 years later, I'm going to get that damn journal back. I was fantasizing about that stupid journal for 20 years too. I wanted to get it back. So that's what it was. I mean, in my head, like, I think unconsciously, I was just doing an episode of Heavyweight. Honestly. So the so. the fact that the fiancé had this one journal of Bobby's and yeah. the parents had not been able to read it, especially the mother, that had been talked about even in your world? Like, you have no idea how talked about. I, every okay. time I saw Helen, we talked about that diary. She really was perseverating. This was her th- but. Her husband was all about like it was a conspiracy. The government brought that was like what his like his tooth running over the you know the hole in his you know yep. um, you know right um, in his gums. I mean, so no, she was fixing. And also, there's the, uh, who was the pair of psychologists who came up with the yearning and searching stage of grief. Like this was her yearning and searching part, right? She wanted the diary back. She wanted to resurrect her son through words. She wanted to be able to read the diary and hear his voice. And my father at one point was like a total liter- like a litigator in his soul and in his bones and in his temperament was like, I'll sue him for, I'll sue, I'll sue her for you. Oh God. I know. Oh, I know. And I was like, dad, dad, give it a rest. Like, you can't do that. Like, you know, it's, it's forget it. Um, so yeah. The way that it happens, you know, when it is it's more natural than that you know that would have like like there's almost a natural release of what people needed what the girlfriend needed from holding on to it um you know it's it's uh yeah it is like ready to give it back she was ready to let them see it you know and to forgive and be forgiven and you know it was yes i agree I don't think litigation would have achieved the same end result. It would have not quite the grace note. Not quite the grace note that the that the story ends on. There, there, that's right. There's there's no grace in in litigation, is there? That's exactly. Right. There's no grace in litigation. What that, that that would be the name of a good something, but I'm not sure what. We'll figure it out. Um, but anyway, yeah. You, you know, sorry. I'm also thinking about what the three of us are doing. I, 
I said this to someone the other day that I feel like our politics is so broken that we are never going to bond. We're never going to persuade the other side about what we believe. You know, um, mm-hmm. we're too far gone and too far divided. But I feel like you can totally bond with anyone over grief or over your disabled relations or over friendship, you know, which I also read about for the Atlantic not that long ago. I mean, they're just all these things that are a lot easier to, I mean, if, if, if we're, if we're going to heal ourselves, it's going to be through that shit. And I think that's why I'm also kind of fixated on it. Maybe. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. I've definitely looked for things, you know, ways to speak to both sides that yeah, basically ways to avoid culture war issues Yes, you know, be, and, and get at the things that we all care about. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you said Jeffrey Goldberg had suggested that you condemn this Bobby's father, you know, Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor of the Atlantic. Um, yep. I'm so glad you didn't. It's one of those things that would have just bounced me out of the story. Yeah, completely. Um, Completely. And he wasn't, I mean, he understood that I couldn't rant. I think he wanted one sentence that made clear that this was a dangerous belief. He wanted me to say that it was dangerous. And in fairness to Jeffrey, he's highly attuned to anti-Semitism. And any theory about a conspiracy always goes back to, you know, well, any conspiracy almost generally, but certainly the 9-11 ones, they all go back to the Jews. You know, it's a very, it's a short leap. And so I knew where his sensitivities were and it's not like I didn't share them. I just knew that like tonally it would be such a radical departure from the rest of the, you know, from the rest of the tone of the piece, like to insert in the middle of it. And this is dangerous. You know. I wrote a story many years ago for LA Magazine about Slab City, which is this squatter's colony out by the Salton Sea. And it, there's like really rough stuff that goes out in that family. They were like, you know, kids that were being abused and the babies whose teeth were rotted out because they were just drinking Coca-Cola from the baby bottle. Yeah. And and it was just, it was, it was rough. But I was spending time out there and making friends with snowbirds and you know, people were taking me for rides and their dune buggies. It was like a genuinely interesting experience. And I was writing about it and then the article came out and I'm actually reading it in the magazine and the editor had inserted three words and it was in a paragraph where I was, you know, sort of talking about some stuff and he inserted, it gets worse. <gasps> and and I judged better, my, bad, worse. My husband had to hold me down in the chair. I thought I was going to become a rocket that would zoom to and crash through the ceiling I was like, how dare you? How dare you now say, oh, by the way, I've spent 6,000 words here with you and I've gained your trust and these people's trust and I'm trying to show you the world. Oh, but really? I just think it's all, you know, they're all just pieces of shit out here. It was, I'm sorry, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I was so livid. No, I'm trying to think, I mean, that I I would have had the exact same reaction and I think I would have behaved really intemperately. I, I would have done something that might have, you know, ended my career. I would have been <laughs> so angry because there you are, like you said, 6,000 careful words and everything blows up with three. That you it makes you, write. it makes you untrustworthy. So it makes you untrustworthy. How did you, I, I'm really curious, especially when Gosh, I was this younger, was I wouldn't have had this so skill. long ago. This is really how like around, probably, this is probably around um, 2001, 2002. So a long time ago. 
Um, okay, I so think if do? I recall, I think I actually called the editor. I don't think I like put something, you know, it's, it's so, it's so tempting to write, you know, just this terrible email. I think I called him and said, asked him why he did that. This is so long ago. I may completely is. be, sorry. Can you name who the editor is? I don't, re I, I don't remember. I, it was the only time it was, I was at, it was at the end. I was with LA magazine for a few years on staff and, um, yeah. He came in right before I was leaving because I moved from Los Angeles. Um, I don't remember. He's not, he was, otherwise he was a nice guy, as I recall. Mm -hmm. I hadn't had any problems with him, but um, it was the only long feature I wrote for him. And it was the last one I ever wrote for the magazine. I was like, I'm, I'm done. Oh here. my God. Well, so yeah, anyway, yeah. you can't, you have to be really, you have to really, really, you do. And, and I'm glad Jeffrey Goldberg said, I get it. Okay. We're just not going to, you know, you, yeah, you, you totally have your way, but that. it's, totally um, it's, it, people don't, I mean, people that are not doing the work that we're doing, I mean, they do understand it, I'm sure, but it's, um, it matters a lot. It matters a lot. It matters to, not just to the readers and to you, it matters to the people that trusted you with these stories. These are the hardest things they've ever gone through in their lives. Okay. And they are now willing, they're going to take this leap of faith for a variety of reasons. They need to, they want to, they can't barely do it, but they'll do it to, to really confide in you. You can't, you can't do that to them. It's interesting you say that because I was saying to Jeff, like, the last thing I want to do is subject this man to some form of re-abuse. Like, he already has suffered. He's just, like, a special ed teacher who whose son died, right? Like, I, so if he's sharing, that's I mean, word for word almost what you said. If he's sharing this, like, something, it, but he didn't have to. Something is driving right. him to do it, but he certainly didn't have to. And the last thing I want him to do is feel like I've punished him again. He's already been punished enough in this lifetime. So, yeah. um, you know, and this isn't the Pentagon Papers. The stakes here are not high. It's a, I'm telling a story in a really human way. So totally, I get that completely. I admire that you didn't lose your head. I would have lost. Uh, well, head. I did with my husband. He probably poured a, a cup of gin down my <laughs> down my throat or something. He kept it relaxed. <laughs> but I remember it very vividly. It's a good husband. Um, good husband. Good husband. Um, so we um, one of the reasons we contacted you um, is because you had a story that came out last week. Now, Sarah, I don't know which who sent it. If you sent it to me first, or I sent it to you first, because we're always texting things that are interesting. I think you may have sent it to me I think I sent it to you yeah. yeah yeah I think I sent it to you before I'd even read it I was like I know yeah. this is gonna be Jen Senior Jen Senior alert <laughs> alert alert and yeah. um we read it and I actually was traveling that day so I had to kind of read it in two bits I um I I I cannot express obviously since I'm stammering here um <laughs> what this story did to me I can tell you that I woke up in the morning I finished it and just leaked tears for a while. Um, this is another story that you had a very, very, very personal connection yeah. to. <laughs> it's two in a row there, girl. Um, I would like to, would you, will you just tell our listeners a little bit about it and then we'll, we'll dive in. Yeah, sure. Um, my mom. Uh, so I thought my mom was an only child. Uh, that's what I was told growing up. Um, and, uh, I, I just thought I had a very, very small family. My father had his sister and I had two first cousins and that was that. Um, so when I was 12, my mother told me in response to something that I wondered aloud, I said, um, 
I wonder how I'd react if I had had a disabled kid. Um, she took this as the opportunity to say, well, I actually have a sister. Um, and she's profoundly retarded, which was you know, the term they used back then. And um, she's in a home. And it blew my doors off. I, I mean, it, it at once blew my doors off and it made like a kind of spooky sense because it explained why like oh my grandfather volunteers every day this was he was retired already um at the westchester association for retarded citizens again we don't use the word retarded anymore but that was the name of the organization back then um like that says something um and my grandmother was always buying christmas presents and it, it sparked an unusual anxiety in her and I remember noticing it. They lived in the same town as us. They uh, babysat us all the time because my mother went to law school when I was nine. So, And I remember every Christmas she became super anxious about buying these presents. And I finally figured out who they were for. Um, and it was because my aunt was taken to church um, every Sunday by this, um, whatever, by this family. Um, we were Jews. And so, you know, Christmas present shopping wasn't the thing they did. So... Uh, I I don't know. So I guess I, I I expressed an interest in meeting my aunt. Um, we never talked about it again. By the way, like I was told about it, and that was like the end of the conversation. My grandfather and my grandmother each talked about my aunt, their daughter once, with me, but it wasn't a long conversation. Um, and I don't think I was sophisticated enough to say, "My God, how sad that must have made you." I mean, I think on some level, I absolutely knew that it made them super sad to give their child away. My, They sent my aunt away to Willowbrook, which was this like gothic mansion of horrors when she was 21 months old. So like, so young, so young. Baby, you freaking baby. But on the other hand, 21 months of loving her, of growing attached to her. Mm-hmm. And then every doctor you know, under the sun was telling them to give their baby away because that's what you did in 1953. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to, to send her to Willowbrook? Um, this yeah, was very, sta- fairly standard at the time. Totally standard. 100% standard. Like my, I mean, first of all, my grandmother knew something was wrong from the moment that not wrong, that would be, I think that insults that, but knew something was different, you know, the second that their um, uh, baby was born. And the, wrong in the sense that it was clear that something, Adele was in a lot of pain. She knew that like, she was in constant pain. Um, and it kept saying to her pediatrician, something's the matter here. Like Adele is crying too much. And they kept insisting, no, 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 everything is fine. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. And my grandma was just this like working class. I think she was, I thought she worked in a, a, her parents' deli. My mother corrected me and told me that she worked as a secretary. Um, she's just this, like, she didn't have a college education. Uh, you know, she was this working class woman from Flatbush. Um, what doctor was going to take her seriously, right? Like, she kept saying that something was really different about Adele and the doctors were blowing her off. And then um, she went to the doctor one day herself in the Catskills where they were on vacation for a week. And the doctor up in the Catskills looked at my aunt and said, is that baby getting the care she needs? And my grandmother said, what do you mean? And the doctor said, 
ma'am, that baby is a microcephalitic idiot. Another technical term, idiots, imbeciles, whatever. Um, those were all in textbooks. Other than that, Hello, Smoke and We've Got Them listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, biweekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.